0: Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Arthur Herman, senior fellow at Hudson Institute, and it's my distinct pleasure to introduce you to what I promise will be a fascinating and very informative discussion with our guest this afternoon, Uh, and also to have the pleasure of being able to moderate the discussion and to initiate the the, the, the Q&A which is going to be, I think, uh, one of the highlights uh, for our discussion over the next hour and a half. Um, the topic is one, of, I think, of perennial interest over the last decade and a half, and one of increasingly urgent interest, uh, both for the United States government, but also for uh, US economy, for infrastructure, for our relations with our allies, for our military. Um, it's become an all-encompassing concern and an all-encompassing uh, focus for a lot of the work which now goes on in terms of thinking about where America's national security lies, where the future of our alliances lie, and how we go about protecting and defending uh, not only uh, our own way of life in the United States, but also protecting and defending the institutions that preserve peace and security around the world. Uh, and I'm talking about cybersecurity, of the issues that involve and that revolve around this new emerging domain within the uh, zones of conflict that exist among nation states today, but also, to uh, the emerging threats that are, uh, are uh, not only present today, but also looming in the horizon. And one of the things we're going to be able to do is to question our guest – our distinguished guest – on what some of those future and emerging threats look like, as well as the status of present threats. The guest that we're talking about is, of course, Ambassador Soren Dukaru. Uh, Soren Dukaru, who is former NATO Assistant Secretary General for Emerging Security Challenges uh, at NATO and also former Uman- Romanian ambassador to the United States from 2001 to 2006, as well as Romania's former ambassador to the United Nations. Before joining Hudson, and by the way, it's now official. Sorin Dukar, who is now our, our new fellow here at Hudson Institute, became official on December 1st. And so this is not only a chance for us to, in, in order to get information and to hear a discussion about the key issues involved, but also to inaugurate and welcome you to – welcome to Hudson uh, and, to, uh, and, and to, our, to our severe of activities, as well as our home here in Washington, D.C. So before joining Hudson, Ambassador Ducaro assumed his position as NATO Assistant Secretary General in 2013, where his responsibilities included oversight in the areas of counterterrorism, nuclear non-proliferation, and the subject for di- tonight, today's discussion, cyber defense. He managed the implementation of the NATO-enhanced cyber policy, which recognized cyber as a formal operational domain linked to NATO's primary task, which is collective defense. Ambassador Dukaru also developed NATO's Cyber Partnership Network, which includes organizations such as the European Union and the United Nations. Fascinating work, which I hope he'll be prepared to discuss uh, with us today. Sorin Dukaru graduated from the Uni- Polytechna University of Bucharest in 1998 and from the National University of Political Studies and Public Administration in 1992 and was associated lecturer in European and International Studies there between 1993 and 1998 at the same time that I was teaching at George Mason University, we a shared academic teaching background. In addition, uh, Ambassador Ducaro has a Master of Philosophy degree in International Relations from the University of Amsterdam. And in 2005, he was awarded a PhD in International Economics by the Bucharest Academy of Economic Studies. Now, what all of this reflects, is the fact that his education and background uh, brings a strong hybrid blend of both technical expertise in applied electronics and computer studies, that's on one side, and a deep immersion in political and economic studies on the other. And it's this um, hybrid expertise that's made him such a valuable leader for NATO and why he's gonna be a major asset for us here working at Hudson. Welcome. Thank you. Ambassador Thank you, Dukaru. Um, what I wanted to do is to sort of have us engage in a kind of informal discussion over some of the main points here in terms of cybersecurity threats now and in the future, uh, and about the ways in which NATO uh, has been taking important and innovative steps in order to deal with those challenges. The great thing about cybersecurity, by the way, and discussing it is, is that the topic is never dull. Uh, and the, the the range of discussion of what is important and what is essential keeps changing. In other words, if we had had this discussion on the cyber domain, let's say, 10 years ago, we would have covered one set of issues and questions. If we'd had the discussion five years ago, it would have been, an even, it would have been a different set. And even two years ago, the kinds of discussion we would have about the cyber domain, about Protection and cyber defense would have a very different cast and a very different sort of focus than it would have, that uh, it's going to have today. So my first question to you is, from that standpoint, what's hot and what's not now in terms of cyber with regard to NATO and, uh, and cyber and the data agenda, especially on the cyber front?
1: Well, thank you, thank you for the for the welcoming and for the introduction, um, Dr. Herman. Um, it's it's really good to be back in Washington, where I spent some uh, good portion of my um, uh, life and pro- professional life, and it's good to to be um, part of the Hudson team to share some of the uh, experience um, that I had in the, in the last years. Now, you pointed to to the fact that the cyber domains probably best reflects uh, the area of acceleration in which we are uh, living. Yes, it's acceleration of opportunity, but it's also acceleration in the s- in sense of the threat landscape um, uh, evolution. Uh, and um, if, if I were to, to describe um, uh, qualitatively the main trends in the cyber threat landscape you know, as, as we see it, uh, these days. I would point um, on a number of, of, of key aspects that are worth to, to follow. Um, number one, um, I think um, we uh, see an increase in frequency, uh, intensity, persistency, and sophistication of uh, the cyber attacks. We are in the area of the advanced, uh, in the era, of advanced persistent uh, uh, threats, it's not uh, just like the, the waves um, pattern that we saw uh, in the past, but it's like you know continuous uh, persistent um, uh, pattern of, uh, especially of those um, high-end um, actors that are uh, looking uh, towards um, everything from. Uh, you know, uh, government uh, uh, institutions to, to key uh, uh, business um, uh, sectors, and this is uh, uh, with the increase of the cyber crime phenom- phenomenon. So you see these two parallel uh, elements: exponential increase of uh, cyber crime, and also uh, increase in persistency and sophistication of, of uh, those attacks that go beyond cyber crime and that uh, probably have uh, behind. Uh, other actors than those in the uh, crime um, uh, area. I can also – and by the way, this is uh, what uh, NATO was mainly uh, looking uh, towards, like the um, high-end threats. Uh, NATO is in the – NATO's mandate in cyber defense It it, what it says. Uh, It's uh, focusing on the – uh, those threats that are against uh, government uh, um, systems, uh, strategic systems, military, uh, not so much the, the cybercrime sector, although um, the, the link between them um, is straightforward. The other uh, aspect that I wanted to, to highlight um, is uh, the constant uh, look uh, of threat actors towards the soft targets, soft belly, soft spots in any of the... Uh, uh, to only attack surface. Um, and what uh, one could uh, see uh, more, more, more recently, for example, um, also at, at, at uh, NATO level, uh, so beyond this kind of continuous threat against uh, NATO networks who are under centralized protection, uh, more attempts, for example, to look to private accounts maybe of military deployed in uh, operations. And there were these uh, stories also in the press of disruptions of, uh, let's say, private phones of uh, US and allied military um, uh, in the enhanced forward presence operations in the Baltic countries. Some of them synchronized with the famous Zapat exercise. Or, uh, you know, going after private, Accounts of um, uh, officials or, or family members, and so on. So interesting links of you know high sophisticated uh, attacks, persistence against against networks that are strategic, but also looking to the to the soft spots in order to to circumvent and maybe uh, enter through uh, and bring trojans around. It. I should also mention the um, uh, preoccupation of. Uh, the, the increasing link uh, between um, cyber crime threat actors and potential state actors uh, the so called uh, aspect of uh, proxies mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes they're you know, most of them they're used for for deniability uh, aspects the uh, so called uh, um, privateering uh, phenomenon uh, also uh, this is uh, this can be extremely um, concerning uh, since uh, uh, it, it might lead to the uh, other concerned potential um, growing nexus between cyber and terrorism. Uh, so if uh, cyber crime actors can be uh, for hire by state actors, they could be also by, by non-state actors, by terrorist actors. And um, last, last but not least, uh, the uh, more oh, Obvious links between uh, cyber attacks and military operations. And it's not entirely new, we would have examples uh, of this, but um, in, in, in more recent time, uh, we realize that um, uh, the, let's say, quote unquote, battlefield uh, has the tendency to become more and more uh, digital. And there's more, a lot of activity. Uh, This is kind of below the threshold of- uh, This this is where it bleeds into what we call hybrid warfare. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So this would be the qualitative description of the um,
0: the landscape and the main trends that we see nowadays. Yeah. Um, So what you've got, then, is you've got a horizon in which you've got this sort of growing range of cyber threats, whether it's cyber crime, whether it's uh, what the cyber experts call advanced persistent threats, ATPs, yeah. Uh, And the linkage between those two and also that the range of targets has expanded from kind of more sort of formal attacks on institutions or on competent corporations or on uh, government agencies to now going after soldiers or uh, personnel's uh, military personnel's personal phones uh, and personal records and in order to provide that kind of disruptive activity as well as Data gathering. Now, in this kind of growing environment, it seems to me that uh, that this is a this is an enormous task to deal with all of this, and that cooperation the one no one country can confront this and deal with this. Cooperation is essential. So, from your where you were, and from where you look forward, what are going to be the key inflection points in terms of that cooperation and uh, on the cyber front, both for cyber defense, but also for Let's say for a kind of a, a rapid reaction force to, what, to what's coming.
1: Well, I think you, you, you touched the, the finger one, uh, put the finger on one of the, the key aspects uh, uh, that um, is essential uh, in, in cyber defense. I always say that cyber defense is like a, a team sport, and it's the only way uh, we can uh, overcome some of the uh, let's say intrinsic uh, challenges of this uh, threat. And, and let me just a minute focus on, on this. What's so special with with these kind of um, of threats? Uh, they are linked to the dynamics of uh, technological evolution. They are um, favoring offense, be defense, because the offender needs to find one entry point on uh, the attack surface, while the defender needs to cover the whole uh, surface. This is hugely asymmetric. It's uh, they offer this uh, element of anonymity and deniability and difficulty of uh, um, attribution. Uh, so the only way to, to overcome this is actually to uh, bring defenders together uh, in uh, terms of exchanging uh, information, uh, exchanging best uh, best uh, practices. And, and frankly, um, being able to assist, support uh, each other uh, in, in, in the case of, uh, of attacks. And when I'm speaking about this uh, cooperation, uh, we, we need to think it uh, or to address it on many levels. Yes, among countries, and the North Atlantic Alliance is a great uh, platform to address this uh, 21st century security challenges, and I'll be able to explain more how we evolved in actually uh, putting more uh, more substance on, on the approach, but it it also um, it's important to have cooperation um, in a multi-stakeholder approach between government ent- ent- entities and industry, uh, academia, civil society. Um, uh, after all, uh, this is a domain uh, that was created uh, and uh, it's uh, owned and operated more than eighty percent by the private sector, by the by 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 the industry. Um, And um, uh, I think uh, we need to foster even more cooperation among uh, the international uh, or regional uh, organizations that um, uh, can bring a value added. And this is where um, NATO has supported uh, its cooperation with the EU. uh, in, in really many ways, information exchange, exchange of uh, best practices, curricula, uh, concepts, uh, and actually getting engaged into exercises and uh, you know, operational approach, but also with uh, e- e- UN in support of development of uh, norms and confidence-building measures in cyberspace in terms of clarifying the applicability of international law to cyberspace, or organizations like the organization for OEC, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, on the so-called CBMs, um, uh, Confidence-building measures, just to name uh, um, name a few. Uh, So, uh, I'm a strong supporter of uh, these collaborative uh, platforms, and personally, I I, um, worked a lot um, also on leveraging the advantage of having an an alliance, a collective defense alliance, and bringing cyber into it, but also expanding the uh, network of partnership to partner countries, international organizations, and to industry and academia. And you know.
0: Uh, If you want, I can dwell into more into it. But uh, I'll let you hear the discussion. I I, I think it'd be fascinating to get into it, Uh, and particularly from the point of view of of how, with the ever-expanding range of institutions that require this kind of cooperation, whether there arise certain kinds of contradictions and questions. For example, we talk about uh, US and NATO, NATO and the European Union. European, NATO, European Union, United Nations, but of course United Nations also includes some <laughs> charter members who are, who count today as advanced persistent threats. So how do you see the sort of, at, at the largest possible reach and range of how we arrive at a sort of a, a common understanding of what cooperation in the cyber domain needs to look like and where it goes? How do you sort of see at the highest level where this could possibly go? Is it possible, for example, when I was in Tokyo at the Mount Fuji Dialogue discussion, uh, we had a leading figure from Microsoft who was talking about Microsoft's effort in developing what it calls a Geneva Convention in terms for, – for governing the cyber domain and for establishing rules and conventions by which uh, certain way which nation states and countries would uh, abstain from certain kinds of practices, or if they find their citizens are engaged in those same kinds of practices would be would face a moral if not a legal obligation to uh, stop that uh, curtail that activity or at least to inform others about its development. Do you see that as something that could that could loom ahead a, a geneva convention at someday? Well,
1: uh, there are many, uh, many initiatives uh, um, that uh, um, have been already unfolding in this uh, sense. So um, already uh, long before uh, the the, um, initiative by Microsoft, and I will come uh, back to to it uh, in terms of explaining the the meaning and the the objective. So long before that, uh, um, under the UN framework, um, a number of uh, key uh, Stakeholders in the uh, UN established uh, uh, so called governmental groups of experts on cyber defense. Um, This group of um, experts uh, uh, produced uh, uh, two important uh, uh, reports. Uh, uh, One was in uh, 2013, one in 2015, and actually. Uh, these uh, reports uh, included some in, uh, some of those conclusions that you mentioned. First, recognition of the applicability of uh, international uh, law, including international humanitarian law, in cyberspace. International humanitarian law applies in 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 the context of conflicts. So that would be above the threshold of conflict of uh, you know armed uh, a- a- attack. So. Uh, the, the, the conclusion was that those kinds of uh, rules, and this is where we have a Geneva Convention uh, that regulates the behavior of states in times of, uh, and governments in times of conflict. They also uh, uh, established uh, a number of norms, like um, uh, states should uh, uh, abstain, for example, attacking critical energy infrastructure or communi- telecommunications infrastructure or national computer incidence response centers, considering, or or national cybersecurity centers, as there are in a number of countries, considering these these things would be extremely um, destabilizing. So in these two two reports, you you have uh, uh, elements that have been uh, produced as guidelines, as voluntary norms. So these are not conventions where states have signed. By the way, the United Nations GG was a group of 25 uh, members. Uh, they brought their report to the General Assembly, where the report was noted by the General Assembly. So it has a political, a, a political, uh, let's say, role of political uh, um, guidance. But it doesn't uh, have, uh, it's not a law under international um, the UN, uh, like it's not a Security Council sanctioned um, decision or or so on. But even uh, political guidance can become uh, law due to state practice under customary uh, law process. So this was the scope of of such uh, such exercise. At the same time, um, the OEC uh, has established also two consecutive sets of confidence building measures in uh, cyberspace uh, that were uh, c- establishing, for example, communications uh, uh, between um, principles between uh, uh, member states. Uh, uh, also, um, uh, in the case of, um, of a crisis, uh, uh, states should be uh, able to, to, to send uh, to each other uh, relevant information uh, so that uh, it could not lead to any misinterpretation or escalation. This was the main uh, meaning of these set of competence-milling measures. And uh, there is a, a recent uh, um, initiative of experts. It's called um, the Global uh, Commission on Stability in Cyberspace that was launched uh, at the Muni Security Council, uh, Conference this year. That includes uh, 30 high-level um, uh, experts uh, with backgrounds in private or, the, or, or uh, public sector or academia uh, that is also um, aiming to come with some principles or norms that then should be taken as voluntary uh, uh, norms and rules by um, states for their responsible behavior um, in, uh, in cyberspace. Um, and I'm coming now to the uh, Microsoft idea of um, Geneva Convention, um, so-called Digital Geneva um, Convention. I think the uh, point is uh, to also support the development of some uh, rules uh, um, whereby um, state uh, actors uh, in uh, uh, their uh, operational cyber uh, engagement uh, uh, would uh, prevent negative impact upon uh, industry, business, uh, or, or upon uh, citizens and, and, and humans. Um, it's not necessarily uh, something that refers to the context of, uh, let's say, uh, international conflict or, or war. Uh, I think their intention was to, to have this known operate below uh, the threshold that's why it, there's a bit it's it's a bit misleading because the original geneva convention speaks about norms in times of conflict okay, yeah. While the main focus of the, the idea uh, initiative from Microsoft focuses uh, on operational cyber engagement by state actors below the threshold. But again, I- I like any initiatives in, in, in this field, it, it's valuable. And I think uh, this has to evolve not just among governments, but also in this uh, multi stakeholder approach. More than anything, the cyber domain needs to include the, the, the key players, uh, governments, uh, uh, industry, and Citizens and their civic platforms. Yeah.
0: Let's go back to your work at NATO. Yeah. for a minute. Um, looking back on it and, and thinking about it, the the work that you did there on particularly on cybersecurity and protecting and, and cyber defense, um, can you tell, give us an idea about sort of what were the basic principles or assumptions you brought to to your task of getting? NATO to work together and NATO countries to work together uh, in order to build an effective and robust cyber defense framework
1: well in order to to come to these concrete aspects, let me give you a sense of um, how NATO evolved mm. because NATO evolved from addressing cyber like like a uh, technical purely technical uh, aspect to bringing it close to the, the its reason of being to collective defense to to strategy and policy uh, and um, It was in the uh, you know turn of the the millennium that um, uh, actually NATO brought this up at summit level, even if it was first as a technical issue. The need to establish some uh, NATO kind of computer uh, incident response uh, team approach. In NATO, it's called ENSIG, NATO Computer Incident Response uh, Center, in order to assure protection of its networks, and that was. uh, very much an, an approach like like any other enterprise. So you were an enterprise. You had networks they were supposed to be uh, functional and also secure. Uh, and by the way, uh, during the uh, NATO operation in the Balkans, uh, 1999, uh, there were some cyber attacks against uh, uh, NATO for the first uh, time that generated a certain level of, uh, of disruption. So this was the the beginning, 2002 but then it was left the whole story was left to, to the technicians you know mm-hmm. it was a decision to invest resources bring some skills bring uh, hardware software and uh, you know it's it's the it uh, specialist uh, business it wasn't until 2007 and the attacks against estonia uh, that the issue came on the uh, north atlantic uh, council uh, agenda because that one was a hugely disruptive uh, attack that frankly brought the government of a member state to a standstill for, uh, for a while. Estonia, a very um, you know, uh, wired country from this uh, point of view, forward leaning into bringing um, you know, e-economy uh, and uh, internet connectivity uh, forward, harnessing the, the, the innovation. Um, also showed the importance of uh, looking into the security aspects and there was there were interesting debates at the north atlantic uh, council there was even a discussion is this attack which was in april 2007 we actually had this year uh, 10 years a decade uh, celebration of what some call web war 1 Uh, Was this something that should lead to the invocation of Article 5 and NATO's uh, collective defense um, uh, clause? And uh, the conclusion uh, right uh, then was that, well, NATO has to 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 really start to address it at at policy level. At the end of the day, Estonians did not ask for uh, Article 5, but the conclusion was NATO has to shift its approach from technical to uh, addressing it as a policy and strategy issue. And the year after, at the 2008 Bucharest summit, NATO had the first policy on cyber defense. And that was quite foundational in the sense that it established uh, the division of labor, still with uh, NATO having uh, the main focus on defending its own networks while allies uh, having responsibility of, uh, of their own. But it was for the first time that it, is, it, it uh, established some guidelines for how nations should uh, better protect their strategic systems while they were clear benchmark for NATO's own systems and also guidelines for information um, uh, exchange. Three years after, Um, after the Lisbon uh, summit in 2010, where NATO adopted uh, the new strategic concept and where the 21st century security challenges were at the uh, forefront. And this is the year when also the division that I led was uh, created, emerging security challenges. NATO had an uh, upgrade of its uh, policy and for the first time uh, introduced cyber defense capability targets in the so-called NATO defense planning process. So benchmarks for each nation. They were focused on what it says, cyber defense, so purely resilience, purely defensive uh, targets, but uh, it, the aim was not to allow weakest links in the chain. And for the first time, uh, the focus was shifting from just you know investing in NATO's own networks, but also doing more for um, for allies. The big inflection point was 2014, uh, where uh, the enhanced policy on cyber defense was uh, adopted, and that one links cyber defense to collective defense, even to the possibility of invoke artic- invoking Article Five, if a cyber attack reaches a threshold of an armed attack or a conventional attack with you know the impact. Uh, the Secondly, it recognized the applicability of international law in cyberspace. Thirdly, it uh, established uh, the um, uh, partnerships network with partner nations, with international organizations, and with industry and um, uh, academia. And then uh, the last, uh, I would say, milestone was just a year and a half ago at the Warsaw uh, Summit where uh, allies adopted uh, what is called a cyber defense pledge, very much in, inspired by the defense investment pledge, only without any 2% or any figure uh, attached. But it was prioritizing investment in cyber defenses because this is the, the, the fastest evolving uh, threat. So from your defense budgets for your, your, uh, your, your investment at government level, put this uh, on the priority list, bring the issue of cyber at high strategic level uh, in, in governments, and also uh, expand the focus, not just on government or military system, but to critical infrastructure uh, as well. So this was the, the, the issue of the pledge. And at the same time, I recognize that cyberspace is, uh, for NATO, the fourth operational domain, like air, land, and sea, in which allies have to defend themselves as effectively and uh, as in these uh, uh, domains. Now, uh, I always say uh, this was not a code war for NATO going offensive on on, on cyber or, you know, automatically. It meant that in terms of approaching the resilience and defense, it changed the uh, assumption and recognized the fact that it has to operate in in a contested environment and potentially disrupted. And also, it allowed the possibility uh, to uh, employ voluntary contributions of cyber effect by allied nations to the benefit of... uh, NATO's operations and missions, so not developing any offensive capability of NATO. NATO as an organization um, uh, will um, only be focused on uh, the resilience of its uh, networks and also promoting the same resilience with uh, allies. Uh, But like in the other domains, NATO will rely on the capabilities, uh, like in Air, Land, and Sea. NATO doesn't have a force structure. It only has a command structure, but it can generate forces or assets or contributions from nations in order to achieve its missions of collecting, And a, that's a differ- that's, that's deterrence, that's effect. Exactly. deterrence effect. Exactly, effect. So, so the, this was the this was the uh, the evolution that also shaped the uh, the institutional uh, construct. Now, in, in this uh, in this context, NATO developed uh, um, mechanisms for information exchange, a malware information sharing platform between all allies, whereby indicators of cyber attacks are exchanged, malware types, and so on is established a cyber threat assessment uh, cell where high-level analysis uh, is brought together, uh, not just uh, aspects of uh, unfolding um, attacks, and also brought cyber uh, awareness uh, aspects into the intelligence-sharing um, mechanism that it has uh, established. Um, it. Uh, also, um, has established MOU points of contact with e- each nation so that has there is seamless um, communication in cases in cases of crisis. It established rapid reaction teams that could be deployed in case of an attack, be it across the NATO enterprise in the, along the sixty plus entities, or to support a nation uh, under attack uh, if it's re- requested and if, of course, the, the North Atlantic Council approved. Just
0: to give you a couple of examples. Yeah. So. Let's think about this for a minute. What, what, what you're really describing, it seems to me, is, is that is the recognition on the part of NATO. I think, to a large extent, you shouldn't be too modest under your guidance and under your tutelage of recognizing that cyber is the fourth operational domain, um, and that it needs to be taken seriously, both from the point of view of what kind of, of a, of should we say, needs to be taken seriously in terms of collective defense, which is part of NATO's mandate, but also at the same time in terms of deterrence effect and how you go about providing a cyber deterrence that makes a malign actor think twice before launching those kinds of attacks and what takes place there. It's not a pledge to take the offense, but it is a pledge to respond robustly and forcefully to a threat that it comes. Now that would be the case with all the other domains as well, isn't it? I mean, whether land, sea, air, including space, we think about space as an emerging domain as well. And yet there's something rather different about the cyber domain as an operational domain. Can you, how would you characterize it, its differences from the other more conventional domains where NATO's military, our military, United States military, uh, have focused their efforts and focused their force structure?
1: Yeah. So uh, first, you brought an, an important aspect that of uh, cyber deterrence, and I will um, come come back to it. Uh, uh, and then the issue of the differences between uh, the, this domain and, and the other domain. Well, this domain is is, is uh, um, uh, different. Uh, number one, because it has been again created through technology, and it's operated by you know private sector mainly and, uh, and in technology. So it's it's like the, 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 the bandwidth is, is is given not by some you know natural environment like air land and sea, but the technological environment which is by the way in a fast change and evolution. So one aspect, speed of change. Yeah. Secondly, um, the uh, what I mentioned also before, uh, the e- easiness to. Uh, hide behind anonymity uh, there are no driver's licenses in um, or or, dri- or, or uh, plates like with the cards identity uh, plates pretty much like it was when the automobile was created no no rules no uh, driver's licenses no non uh, driver's plates. Um, you know the, the president of the Munich Security Conference, Ambassador Ishinger, who was also ambassador in Washington, says that it's a bit of a wild west. This is how he, he called it. <laughs> and, and so, yes. on. so everyone can hide behind this anonymity, and it's difficult to 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 attribute, um, especially the advanced persistent threat. Especially right? the advanced persistent threat because they also use like, as I said, proxies, uh, and they, they 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 hide behind them. Uh, and last but not least, uh, it's. Um, again, it favors the offense, um, makes uh, uh, the defense and resilience difficult. And when it comes to employing potentially also offensive, uh, let's say, tools or capabilities, um, these capabilities are rather unique. They are not like a box of ammunition or so on that has the same caliber and so on. And none of the... uh, Users uh, are ready to show them. They, they everyone keeps them. Uh, there's no transparency because uh, if you would make them transparent, you would lose them. So whenever you would uh, employ uh, or, or try to plan to, to, to address them, uh, people would really think in rather in terms of effects they generate rather than capabilities per per se. So. The approach has several uh, several differences, uh, in also in terms of uh, you know military uh, planning, uh, defense planning, and now I'm coming to the d- deterrence aspect.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, you cannot use uh, c- c- cyber means for deterrence the way you use nuclear or conventional ones. Everyone knows what's an effect of a nuclear weapon is, depending on how many kilotons and so on. Everyone knows what the effect of, a, I don't know, of a 500 pounds uh, you know, buster bomb uh, is, or precision-guiding munition and so on. Uh, and you can show them up to deter an adversary. You cannot use deterrence in cyber the same way. Uh, in a way, when we discuss about uh, deterrence um, of cyber attacks, I think a good deterrence is deterrence by denial. The more resilience you have, the better you deter an adversaries because you de- deny him the benefit of mm. the investment in the attack. So that's why resilience and defense is at the core at, at the NATO mandate as well. And I think at every government uh, level, so everyone starts with better resilience. And uh, secondly is the development of norms, confident li- li- building measures, legal framework, so that we have a, a governed space rather than a Wild West, And uh, uh, last but not least, um, I think uh, when it comes to deterrence by denial, uh, I'm sorry, by retribution, um, we think that this should be um, cross-domain deterrence. So in order to deter cyber attacks, at least at NATO level, uh, if a cyber attack reaches an Article 5 level, it doesn't mean that NATO would automatically respond with cyber means. It could respond with all means available, from political means to military if the threshold given the gravity of exactly. the attack and this is actually i think a, a strong deterrent message so uh, there's no assumption that you only would respond in kind it's the cross domain response option that uh, one uh, reserves and if it's below the threshold it could be you know other aspects like uh, and this is what also government think about uh, political diplomatic uh, sanctions economic uh, sanctions in, in, in such a way that uh, you don't generate uh, unnecessary escalation, but you just change a calculation of the adversary so that he, he, he really um, has a sense of uh, what's the price of an attempt uh, of future cyber attack. So this is a very hot issue, not just at NATO. It's also in this country, in Omoez. What more to do to prevent this escalation of uh, cyber attacks? Sometimes it's important just to speak out publicly. Uh, and uh, if you look to the recent year and a half, especially you know after the U.S. election in 2016 and every, all discussion around it, um, in the context of a European uh, elections this year, you, you've seen more and more governments speaking out about the threat that they see and actually sending the message to the uh, attackers that we see you. Uh, by the way. And uh, you know don't cross uh, the line because then uh, all uh, options of response uh, could be um, uh, could be employed and this was not the case a year, I mean two years three years uh, ago so this this the fact that there is a public uh, um, sometimes it's a public attribution
0: and sometimes it's just a, a public warning uh, so to say yes and the way in which this is another aspect of course of the cyber domain is, is that it is now spilled over into the information domain. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and the thing. sort of the, the classic hi- hacking attack and hacking activities are supplemented by, and in some cases, even surpassed by the efforts at spreading disinformation what has come to be called fake news. But this is also operates in the same domain. It's also an overlaps with it. And I know that from the point of view of of what we call war fighters in front of our own U.S. military, getting a solid grasp of how to uh, deal with threats in the information domain has been extremely challenging. And I wonder if that's also true for dealing with the cyber domain. In other words, to what degree do the masters of the other domains have sometimes difficulty grasping and in- encompassing and understanding how cyber really is integral to how their domains function at a technical basis, but also can be hugely supportive for what their efforts are going to be about as, as member, members of NATO. Well, two, two
1: points here. You mentioned this uh, stronger connectivity between cyber and information domain. I mean, in, in some jargon, some call information manipulation or information warfare the kind of soft cyber. Mm. I mean, you use the information and the chain without actually disrupting the systems that are propagated it. While the hard cyber is actually the disruptions of systems uh, right. and uh, uh, with, with the more disruptive or destructive uh, effects. Uh, so more and more these two uh, domains are seen or, or aspects of the, of the same of the same are uh, uh, seen together. Uh, then the link with the other air, land, and sea uh, uh, domains. I think everyone now understands that uh, cyber is me- uh, mainstreamed into what they are doing. I mean, every ship, every airplane, every tank or, or uh, you know uh, armored vehicle and so on relies on communications, relies on the computer. More and more, uh, they are like computers with wings, with uh, you right. know uh, cannons or so on and, and and so forth. So bundles of ag- algorithms is what they've become. Exactly. So um, the, uh, the 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 intertwining between cyber and the other domains is even much closer be- than between the domains themselves. We we made some analysis of how, um, let's say, defense strategy evolved for when the air domain became a defense domain at the turn of the last century. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were very many debates that were, were, were then that were familiar to, to us on, on on cyber, and it took a while to understand how air should be linked to uh, you know land uh, forces to naval forces. Uh, I think in in uh, with cyber we were much faster to recognize that uh, all the other domains depend on cyber, and then cyber itself could also potentially deliver uh, uh, effects that could be coordinated with uh, with the other ones, And in some cases, it could give options that would be more proportional and potentially generate less collateral uh, damage uh, or, or loss of, uh, of uh, life. Cyber can be uh, less uh, lethal. And you um, can imagine an, an, an exercise where um, some activity, be it uh, of a government or a a mission, a military mission, is uh, uh, really put at jeopardy due to, let's say, a a simple attack, distributed uh, denial of service attack that disrupts disrupts functionality. And these are the kind of attacks that also are easily attributable. At least you you, you can get towards the South through technical uh, means. Uh, Now, in order to stop the disruption, Uh, and you have the location where it comes for, or the locations, you can take them down with kinetic uh, means, in an operation, let me put it this way. Or you could uh, easily, and with less collateral damage, uh, stop them through countermeasures uh, in the uh, cyber domain. So from this point of view, uh, people have started to recognize, and especially military um, uh, commanders, that it would offer options uh, that would be uh, really uh, closer linked to to their obligation under law to find the uh, option to achieve the mission by using the least uh, lethal or, or the, 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 the option that generates
0: um, uh, no or uh, least collateral damage. Right. And it can even exercise that, that option in a decisive way. If your enemy can't fire any of its weapons,
1: he's out of luck. Uh, in all honesty, in all fairness, one should also think about uh, the other aspects, um, the, the, the fact that uh, uh, cyber options uh, like this, should we should make sure that they have a discriminate effect, and they do not generate uh, effects that are, uh, let's say, uh, uh, spread uh, um, over um, or beyond the operational uh, theater. Um, and um, yeah, I think on the electric grid. Exactly. Us. So they they, they 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 cannot do this. This would uh, this would uh, actually be harmful. And this is where actually NATO and uh, uh, democratic governments support the idea that these should be protected. And this is why any capabilities that are are um, uh, thought of being employed to deliver such uh, effects uh, should uh, really have the effects of precision guided, uh, um, you know, if you want uh, effects and so on, rather than raw. Uh, let's see, like, like it's like the difference between
0: sorry, carpet bombing to. I was just going to gonna say yeah, it exactly re- precision guided right, uh, munitions. Re- re- yeah. Carpet, uh, carpet cyber bombing. So one of the things, one something that we talked about earlier, the, the idea that in dealing with the cyber domain, that that cognitive gap yeah. between thinking about the other domains, you're seeing that gap closing pretty quickly.
1: Well, yeah, it's. We're definitely better, and I always like to look to, look to the full uh, part, uh, full half of the, of the glass. Uh, uh, the cognitive gap will continue to be a challenge because the, of the, the evolution of technology. Yeah. And um, by the way, cognitive uh, gap was one of the uh, challenges uh, in between translating the language of, of technology, digital language, into the language of policy and, and strategy. This is something that I think it's, it's at the heart of the debate in this country, in other democratic uh, countries, to understand uh, how this technological uh, evolution impacts society in so many uh, ways, including from the point of view of, of security, and what decision, political decision makers uh, should uh, be asked to, to, to um, uh, you know, um, implement in order to respond to the implications of technology. So I think we came a long way in the last years of having this translation of the the digital into into strategy, Uh, definitely into bringing, uh, in the military terms, the domains uh, together. But I also have to say that uh, with the new, let's say, developments at the horizon, cloud computing, internet of things, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, all these will bring new elements that would need to, 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 to us to to close this uh, cognitive uh, gap. When you start to discuss about quantum computing, it's uh, it's a whole new ballgame in terms of comprehending and uh, generating the, the
0: the kind of uh, strategic questions that need to be answered by the political decision-making. You see the ambassador is pushing my hot button when he talks about quantum, because <laughs> that's one of the projects that we're engaged in here at Hudson is on developing a. a a national quantum initiative because of the challenges that it represents. Do you want to say something a little bit about – not necessarily about quantum, but just my last question for you is where you see future threats coming and where you see future advantages coming with regard to the cyber domain? Um,
1: Let me start with the uh, uh, IoT revolution. That. We're not just no just scratching the surface I mean this will blow blow, uh, blow up in the next couple of years not not more um, think about the how how much the attack surface will uh, uh, grow so it's, it's an issue of scale uh, if um, IOTs will not be developed with um, some security by design they will multiply the Attack entry points with orders of um, of magnitude. So uh, there has to be some process of certification from the point of view of cybersecurity, and also there has to be. We have to think about security uh, uh, layers and uh, and rules and everything. It has to start with uh, enhancing our education on the basic cyber hygiene aspects because if you have everything uh, connected from your light bulbs to the refrigerator and so on, and uh, I think in every house we will need to have a kind of uh, cloud with layers of security. I mean, some things don't need to be secured so much, others would be, because you don't want everything to to be linked to your computer that you're working uh, every day where you do your banking stuff and so on. Uh, so, you, you, Otherwise, uh, you need to employ all the sensors with high security and they're very expensive. You can apply some ones that will be less expensive, but definitely decouple them from your main business, very, very much like we do in more, let's say, complex organizations. Right. Uh, the IoT also brings something, some other element that uh, I fear will make um, uh, things a bit more, more, more dangerous. They link the virtual space with the physical space. And uh, it, the, the temptation to have at the end of a cyber attack something that will generate the boom will be irresistible. irresistible, including by terrorists. I mean, one of the conclusions why I would say cyber terrorism has not been growing, thanks God, so fast as maybe we feared even five years ago, because there's still this temptation of terrorists to do spectacular things. Well, with the IoT, they could generate spectacular things through just playing with the keyboards and, and, and so on, which brings me to the need also to address this in, in depth. Of course, the uh, you know cloud uh, technologies, artificial uh, uh, intelligence would generate uh, challenges because uh, uh, you know there could be so many ways of faking identities from you know uh, pictures to anything else. But let me also come with, the, with their side of the coin. I'm a strong believer that technology in itself also brings the right solutions and can uh, really strengthen uh, the capability of the defender if it's employed uh, rightly uh, and uh, it's taken into consideration. Uh, we already use uh, algorithm and artificial intelligence to study anomalies of be- behavior or traffic against our networks. This is what advanced cyber analytics are, are, are doing. Uh, this, with a new uh, algorithm, this will be uh, increasing, and um, the same, for example, with a quantum computer that could make uh, communications uh, virtually unbreakable, sprints uh, secure. So uh, I'm not advocating of uh, running away from uh, technological level for for innovation. No, actually, of embracing more of the innovation on the side of the
0: defenders. Should we open it up to questions, sure. To the audience? Sure. If you would, uh, if you have a question for the ambassador, um, if you would raise your hand, and one of our interns will come to you with a microphone. And then if you could very kindly uh, identify yourself and uh, name your affiliation, however much of affiliation you care to give, and then we'll be happy to hear your questions. Should we go there and then to the, to the, to the young lady over here?
2: Hi, good afternoon. Uh, John Feroldi from Charter Communications. My question has to do with um, the Geneva Convention and uh, how pe- how nation-states have, in my mind, not adhered to the, the uh, convention standards and what would be, in the cyber world, what would you envision, would that uh, take hold this similar type of situation be um, uh, adhere to where, where they would not adhere to the, the standards that put out by the the, uh, uh, the uh, world bodies.
1: Okay, so you're meaning the the real Geneva Convention, the original one that was uh, developed uh, after the world wars, uh, so to say, uh, to promote uh, international humanitarian uh, law. Uh, I-, I think that uh, the uh, uh, there are two great contributions uh, uh, that have uh, really brought more clarity on uh, the applicability of Geneva uh, Convention for, for cyberspace. Uh, one uh, was the first report of the United Nations Governmental Group of Experts who said that international law is applicable so it was a recognition that uh, if there is a conflict and cyber is applied in this conflict then those rules that are supposed to protect civilians uh, should apply also from cyber uh, attacks and um, interesting uh, I- enough uh, um, uh, in this debate, also uh, I- the International Red Cross has been involved, uh, and we had actually also uh, dialogue and there were conferences and so on. The other big contribution is the so-called Tallinn Manual, um, that was uh, um, developed um, by the NATO centers of ex- Center of Excellence in on cyber uh, defense in Tallinn, um, and uh, that one goes into details of how examples of how this should uh, apply, and what they're doing is they're uh, reducing the number of gray zones in terms of interpretation. There are still gray zones, but they're reducing uh, uh, them. And the Tallinn Manual 1 was focused on the applicability of uh, international law in cyberspace in, in the context of a conflict. Then they came with Tallinn 2, which was uh, uh, published in February this year, mm-hmm. where they added to this uh, uh, the kind of uh, rules uh, that should be. Uh, Governing cyber states below the conflict of armed um, attack, like cyber uh, operations below threshold of armed attack. So these are important contributions. And frankly, they both reinforce the Geneva Convention with the, in its
0: applicability to cyber. I think also part of the gentleman's question was can we expect that a cyber conventions of these kinds international level would be any more effective than Geneva Convention has been? historically in terms of restraining those who are ruthless enough or have find ways around those conventions any thoughts i mean uh, what what the effort is right now
1: is to grow the normative uh, framework for the situations below the threshold of, of conflict this is what the idea from microsoft Now, is. that could be
0: a very big big step
1: exactly yeah. and these are w- all these initiatives you know from uh, I mean, continuous effort from the UNGG, OEC, industry, Microsoft, from this uh, Global Commission on um, uh, Stability in Cyberspace. They're all supposed to come with ideas, proposals of norms that maybe at a certain point uh, will be the basis of some arrangement with governments uh, and other uh, players, but we are not there yet. No.
0: But it's a step in that direction. And yes, next question. Hi, my name
1: is Bojuli Crowley. I'm a cybersecurity consultant with um, Price Waterhouse. And so, my question for you is around the role in government to regulate uh, cyber defense in the private sector. I'm working mostly with uh, Fortune 50 companies in the critical infrastructure areas. Where, um, to your point around the convergence of the physical and the um, and the technical world, you know estimates of an attack on the U.S. power grid could cause. Over a thousand fatalities, you know, in an extreme case. So today, it seems like a lot of these companies are going in alone in terms of determining what the right level of cyber defense is. But what do you think the role of government should be to influence that? Okay. Well, th- thank you for that, and this is uh, um, this is an important uh, um, issue, uh, and it also brings forward uh, an important dilemma of, uh, you know how much to regulate and how much to let uh, other, uh, or let's say the dilemma between self-regulation and like government uh, regulation. I think um, the first step is usually to establish some incentives, and governments also can establish such incentives that would improve security. And this this, uh, was very much the approach in the United States, and frankly also uh, in the European Union uh, with the uh, NIS uh, Networking Information Security um, uh, Directive. Um, so, to first establish some norms, voluntary norms by industry, where, whereby they would apply some minimum level of uh, uh, cyber um, uh, security. Uh, then, a step forward would be also to establish some uh, certification mechanisms. So, you you can gen- you can. Uh, generate a certification uh, authority, and many countries have it, UK have it, uh, uh, and now uh, there is a plan also under the EU framework to bring certification uh, into the ENISA or the uh, f- what they will want to call the future cybersecurity company, uh, whereby um, not everyone has to apply the same standards, but those who w- want to, to be seen on the market as providing more secure uh, products they get certified, and then they're also more attractive uh, to, to to sell their product or their services because they're certified. And these are market incentives. And then you have regulatory incentives that uh, really say, well, you cannot go below uh, this level of security because then uh, you really are liable in uh, you know administrative, legally, and so on and so forth. It's it's like uh, we do for you know car safety for you know electrical grid safety and and so on and uh, and and so forth uh, if i if i believe that uh, there has to be more involvement of um, um, of, of of government i think uh, there has to be a a stronger interaction between government and the private sector in order to develop this so yes more involvement but more involvement in dialogue with the private sector not just imposing stuff without consulting at uh, at right and actually convincing a, a private sector that, uh, in 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 some uh, situations, uh, regulating more can actually bring uh, better, um, uh, let's say, uh, also best, uh, better business opportunities, uh, because uh, uh, people feel uh, that they can rely on uh, on the product or the service. So there's more business opportunity out of it.
0: Yep.
2: Doris do you have a question? My initial question was actually more or less the same as the previous speaker, who pays for cybersecurity and, um, at the different levels, personal, business, and, and government, but do you have anything to add on that? Then my second question would be attribution, which is very hard in, in cyber. I mean, it was a rare case with uh, North Korea and the Sony hack, where the U.S. government sort of stepped out and says, we positively sort of identify you. So I just wonder your thoughts on that and how you work around that and the whole question of whether it's... Non state actors that are affiliated with a state actor and, and these sort of whole attribution chains?
1: Well, uh, uh, let me uh, m- say yes, I, I agree with you. Uh, the difficulty of attribution should not be uh, underestimated. But I also add something to that. It should not be also overestimated. And I'm telling you why. Um, with the employment uh, of advanced uh, cyber analytics, uh, the technical analysis uh, of uh, threats has really uh, evolved tremendously. Uh, I would echo those who are saying, and I work from the NATO experience, but you, you might find uh, this also, this, this uh, statement from others who are in cybersecurity business, that uh, attribution, technical attribution, uh, could uh, bring this, this level to a 75, even 80% um, accuracy. Now, is this enough to go to court? Well, in the cybercrime sector, is not enough. You need to really convince to go if you go to court, uh, and it's a challenge, especially in the criminal world. And I, I tell you, my friends from uh, who are in the cybercrime fighting uh, business, uh, they always like to point to this asymmetry between uh, you know the easiness to to attack and the difficulty to. Uh, prosecute somebody. So they're moving with the speed. They, the attackers, are living, moving with the speed of light, and we are moving with the speed of law. I mean that's that's very, uh, you know, uh, in, it shows uh, what the asymmetry in this is. But um, when it comes to high-end um, uh, attacks, uh, and uh, if you have uh, where you can employ this uh, technical resources of like states or. Intergovernmental organization like NATO, and you can put on top of it, not just, uh, I mean, on top of the technical analysis, intelligence analysis, this goes up to the 90, 95% um, uh, level, which is really, uh, really high because they're combining the systems analysis with what they see from, you know, intelligence sources underground. They're providing the link with a proxy and potentially a state uh, actor which is not seen but you can uh, you know uh, depict it through through intelligence analysis and at the end of the day uh, at government level uh, the attribution is is an issue of confidence and it's a political decision to really uh, say well we have this attribution with high level of confidence or very high level of uh, confidence and based on this to take the following uh, uh, measures. I mean when uh, the previous uh, administration took the decision for example for the diplomatic uh, sanctions it was based like you know confidence of analysis of this um, mixing into the election process and then it said, well the, the response is in diplomatic uh, uh, terms. So this is how it has to be uh, seen. I have to say also that in the cybercrime sector, um, the employment of algorithms uh, and uh, the better connectivity uh, between the the players uh, and also more knowledge among the prosecutors. So embedding them with technical experts has uh, increased uh, the the, the rate of successful, uh, I would say, um, uh, prosecution. Um, so there's a positive uh, trend as well, uh, but um, uh, still we're not filling the gap. I mean, uh, cybercrime is, is, is evolving uh, tremendously, and uh, in, in some cases, uh, you know, uh, a big portion of what nations gain in terms of let's say, GDP growth from technology, from innovation, is lost due to the low level of cybersecurity. And in some cases, it can really uh, be, be a lot. Um, there are a number of ex- examples. Uh, it's called cybersecurity Index, and they're performed by uh, a couple of uh, agencies around the world and where, where they make these examples. And in some cases, in the developing world, there were examples where uh, it was proven that uh, uh, they were the brink of uh, the whole gain from innovation, from being wired uh, would be uh, offset by the lack of investment in the cybersecurity, and that's why I said, uh, even at the UN level, it's, we should not just support digital, uh, let's say, uh, outreach across the world in the developing world. It should be accompanied with cybersecurity,
0: right, in a multi-domain kind of basis. Another question? We have one over here,
2: Mr. Ambassador. It's good to see you again. My name's Arnie Dupuy. I'm a Booz Allen employee working at the uh, DASD operational energy. So when I say operational energy, I mean that uh, energy such as liquid fuels and battlefield power that the, the warfighter needs to conduct his or her mission. So more and more from the Pentagon, we're seeing this confluence of energy and cyber, cyber operational energy and cyber. And as uh, operations become more and more networked, we're seeing a series of potential vulnerabilities. So, I think one of the more uh, encouraging things I've seen was the collaboration between the Energy Security Center of Excellence and the Cyber Center of Excellence, I, and I attribute that to your your leadership. Do you have any sense of your, predes- your uh, success, I should say, uh, having a, the same uh, long-term, bu- long-term vision, particularly when bringing in uh, centers of excellence and also academia and private sector?
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for that question. Um, uh, I would say that… Um, uh, these centers of excellence and there are now 24 that nato has uh, accredited are a huge resource and uh, in the last years we have seen unprecedented uh, cooperation among uh, them and one example is like uh, S- uh, S- center of excellence in um, lithuania which is focused on energy security really taking on the born lessons learned of how how to ensure uh, security of energy networks from cyber um, uh, attacks after all we had some uh, examples were, for example, for, for, for security cameras uh, that were put on uh, pipelines to assure physical security were actually the anti of cyber uh, attackers mm-hmm. and generated uh, b- blow-up, uh, so, so to say. And uh, this was studied and uh, uh, generated some uh, uh, benchmarks. Uh, we are – I mean, in NATO, um, uh, the, the Center of Excellence on Energy Security has been in the forefront in established uh, or bringing – uh, security standards in among the so more nato stanag process uh, you know logistical standards for pipelines for networks uh, and also um, linking this um, with uh, what they called the innovative uh, energy solutions for military um, uh, applications uh, where you both uh, Reduce the amounts of uh, energy uh, that is employed to conduct some operations, at the same time increasing the uh, uh, the security. Uh, I- in a way, it helps reducing. You don't need so. You're not relying so much on the networked energy uh, footprint. You can drain more energy on the spot in the operations center to this uh, mixed grid with uh, wind. Uh, 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 solar, uh, diesel, and and so on. You reduce the kind of logistical uh, footprint by a concept through this uh, smart energy. At the same time, uh, whatever is is left to be protected, you employ the best practices that you learn, especially from the cyber sector when it comes to uh, to protecting them uh, through through cyber means. So, um, this is one examples where. Standards from cyber have been embedded with the standards for energy security, and they feed into the STANAG process.
2: Can you
0: very quickly characterize uh, NATO centers of excellence for those who don't know the term yeah. or have run across them? There's been, a, there's been a rapid proliferation of them very, very recently. They actually yeah. evolved in the last decade, yeah. practically. Um,
1: and they came from the idea to expand uh, NATO's pool of uh, high-level expertise, uh, without actually, um, let's say, uh, expanding NATO's uh, footprint, and in a context of r- rather reducing budgets than growing budgets. So uh, they're not operating on NATO budget. Uh, there are initiatives by a number of nations, allied nations, and in some country c- cases, allied plus partners, because you have Sweden, Finland. Uh, Austria, other uh, non-NATO uh, allies that are part of the center protection, in some cases Georgia, Ukraine, mm. uh, others, Israel. Um. So um, they uh, establish uh, those centers, but they are certified by Atlantic Command uh, transformation according to some NATO objectives. So they're not owned by uh, NATO. and. Uh, not all the products are becoming NATO products. Not even the Tallinn Manual. So it was developed by the Centre of in, uh, in Estonia. It's a resource for NATO, but it's not a consensual document, uh, not a, a NATO document per se. So very much like this, you know, in cyber um, uh, security, uh, energy security. Uh, strategic communications to fight also information warfare. In counter-terrorists, we have three centers of excellence. One is generic. The other one is focused. Another one is focused on IED, improvised explosive devices, and another one on uh, uh, the potential use of weapons of mass destruction by terrorists. Uh, so, uh, yeah, they have proliferated in a good sense uh, in the last uh, ten years, and they are uh, uh, an important resource. And uh, they are also a resource not just for NATO allies, as I said. They can be for Uh, also other partner organizations like the EU, in some cases we cooperate with the United Nations. Uh, They are a strong resource for what we're doing, for example, now to support uh, training and uh, education and capacity building in partner countries. There's a huge effort by NATO to train uh, its uh, partners in the southern uh, neighborhood in the fight against terrorism, addressing terrorism at the source. And center of excellence they are at the front for it, uh, far, uh, of it. And sometimes, as I said, they operate with uh, UN programs, EU programs, so we don't have unnecessary duplication
0: and we have coordination and deconfliction. No. I think we've got time for one more question. If, uh, someone has one.
2: Sure. You mentioned the lessons learned. How often are those distributed to a wider audience? Uh, again, I'm, I'm speaking generally this time, but as, as far as the, uh, for instance, the energy cyber, you know, would those be available to a wider audience to to, uh, to generate that uh, that kind of cooperation?
1: Yeah, there are two types of lessons learned. One are the ones that are, let's say, formal, and they're circulated in a restricted format. And they're coming from exercises. And then they fuel uh, what we call the um, Uh, Process of of, uh, you know the update doctrine or or procedures and and processes, Uh, but there's also informal ways. For example, the Centre of Excellence in uh, in uh, Lithuania on energy security has an annual event. Um, It's called uh, if if I'm not missing NIAS, uh, Novative, not NIAS. um, Anyway, it's it's uh, it's an event that they're having annually and it's open to the to the public. uh, um, now is the NATO Information Assurance uh, Seminar, and the other one uh, is uh, focused on energy aspects, and I forgot the acronym, so I'm
0: uh, too many acronyms. At yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so I'll tell you what I'm going to pose to you the last question, and I'm not going to be able to let you go until you I uh, bring up the issue of the calls for NATO defense budget increases from NATO member countries. President Obama made the call. Uh, Secretary of Defense Gates, in his farewell speech, made the call. President Trump has made the call. Uh, Secretary General of NATO has made the call. Um, Quite apart from the issue of the political aspects of this, when we think about the spending on the defense budget in terms of conventional forces, that's one area. How How would you see increases in defense budgets by NATO countries having an impact on cyber defense?
1: Well, well first and foremost, um, I, I think uh, um, the the issue of increasing defense uh, budget uh, continues to be very um, uh, timely. Uh, I think uh, NATO is in a much better place than it was uh, at the Well Summit, where it brought back the 2% uh, uh, aspect. And um, I think uh, in the last years, not only we are increasing the the budgets per se, but we are also increasing the capabilities. Right. And also structurally, for the first time, at the last meeting of ministers of foreign affairs, uh, I'm sorry, of defense minister of defense of NATO, uh, there was an agreement on a, an outline design of the NATO command structure that would, uh, for the first time, grow. After it was downsized from 40,000 to 15,000 to 7,000. And now, for the first time, it will grow with new elements, including uh, an aspect that has to do with cyber, for example, cyber operations center. There, was another, there will be another component that will focus on logistics, another one on the um, threats in the North Atlantic, just to give you a, a sense. So f- all of a sudden, we are, are in a different dynamic. Yes, it was logical to downsize after the end of the Cold War and you know, cash in the peace dividend in a context where the landscape, threat landscape was, uh, let's say, um, decreasing in terms of concern and so on. And it's logical to you know, scale back up when the threat landscape is, is growing. How to leverage this resource or the SX resources towards um, uh, cyber? Uh, NATO was uh, not, um, uh, let's say, has not put, as I said, a figure. on uh, on investment in in, in cyber um, defense. But due to the fact that in the cyber defense pledge that was assumed politically as a separate document by heads of state and government, it says prioritization of resources for cyber defense. In itself, it brought the issue uh, on the front um, uh, burner. Now, this is then quantified through uh, um, uh, what is called um, metrics of uh, uh, mapping uh, how states implement this pledge, uh, and uh, there will be a report on the Cyber Defense Pledge to the next summit in uh, in July, and that in itself probably will get more granular into what to recommend and where to put the, uh, the resources. We're not there yet, I mean, uh, I, I learned in these years, for example, that uh, so not for military purposes, but, for for example, for the security of the industry in uh, Israel, for example, uh, there is a requirement that uh, all, um, at least government entities, in their investment for IT modernization, 16% sh- at least, a minimum, should be invested in the security part uh, of it. And there are more nations that are thinking about in these terms, and these examples uh, I don't know, might inspire also some future evolution in NATO. So it's a high priority to invest into cyber. It didn't not – it doesn't have yet numbers attached attached to it.
0: I want to thank Ambassador Soren Ducaro for sharing his knowledge and expertise and information with us today. And so I want to thank you, and I also want to say welcome to Hudson. Thank you. Thank you again.